everybody uh, to this uh, seminar in the Digital Humanities uh, series. Um, the first thing uh, we ought to do is to welcome what is uh, representation from, I think, five faculties and another unit of the university. I think that'll be a record this year in terms of interdisciplinarity, so we already deserve some kind of gold star. Also welcome academic visitors from the University of Olomouc uh, in the Czech Republic. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, but also, um, in case we don't deserve a clap at the end of this, two people who definitely do are uh, Steve Morris and uh, Diane Morris, who've done a great deal of the uh, practical work in uh, BBC and Open Media Unit around the, the rights um, and also just digitising and gathering the content that we'll talk about today. Um, and uh, really none of what we've done up to now and none of the rather ambitious plans we have in the future could be, go anywhere without the work you put in, so thank you very much indeed. Um, we are uh, pretty well bursting with excitement about the possibilities of what can be done with the BBC's uh, broadcast archive. Um, we will try and contain ourselves. We will try and contain ourselves not least to 40 minutes of talking and showing because we want to make lots of space for a discussion. We really do want to build this as a, a thinking in public about what we might do uh, with the archive. A first point is that... Um, digitization uh, and uh, research is opening up all sorts of new questions in general, new practices, new responsibilities, and there are uh, um, uh, uh, melting boundaries also between research and teaching and public engagement generated by this new kind of work. Um, that's true of all digital humanities and social sciences. I think there are reasons that there are some additional expectations laid on top of a broadcast archive. So just to introduce ourselves, my name is Joe Smith. I'm in the geography department here at the Open University. My colleague in geography, George Revel, who's a cultural historian and environmental historian, can't be here. My background's in environmental policy and politics and the mediation of environmental issues. Um, I'll let Kim and Zdenek introduce oh. themselves, if that's OK. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kim Hammond. I've worked with George before, so and I've worked on the environmental database here. And my background's in environmental science and then environmentalism and society. I'm Zdenek Zrahal. I am from the Knowledge Media Institute of the Open University, and we will show you, I will show you results of a few of our projects in the past, which might be inspiring will be inspiring. <laughs> so what's happening with the Broadcast Archive is that we're um, just in a relationship between the BBC and the Open Uni University, just levering open the door just a, a few millimetres <clears throat> on what is millions of hours of available content. Um, the BBC and the Open University are not the only partnership looking at this question but we're the only partnership that's looking at it in terms of higher education. And for obvious reasons, we're rather natural partners around this question. What might it mean to open up those millions of hours uh, to scholars, uh, to students, and to wider publics? The environment topic is the very first topic uh, within this pilot um, shortly following on from us, uh, there's been 50 hours of psychology uh, content selected um, and handled in the same way. I'll expand in a little while on, on exactly how it's been handled. 
But I think environment is a, a, a rather well-chosen topic. We didn't choose it. Um, a well-chosen topic to start with. It's necessarily interdisciplinary. It's controversial. But uh, it's also the case that environmental change and sustainability debates emerge in step with uh, a huge explosion of, uh, of media production and consumption and latterly, of course, um, uh, different media platforms. So it's a good place to, um, uh, to look at how we might play with this new material. Contemporary environmental policy and politics uh, doesn't just happen in parallel with, it's very <coughs> strongly shaped by these mediations, and particularly by broadcast mediations, and particularly by the BBC. Public service broadcasting has always been overrepresented in uh, environmental coverage. I think we'll find that that's the case as the Open University rolls out its work into other sectors. <laughs> there are some senses in which a broadcast digital archive is very, throws up very similar uh, questions to those that are faced by some of our colleagues in the room who are working with other branches of the digital humanities and social sciences. Um, same challenges in term, uh, challenges and opportunities in terms of um, uh, scale, navigation, user interface, um, more philosophical questions about audience, or is that participant, uh, or is that co-producer, um, once you open the door up. But I think there are additional interpretive, <coughs> practical, and navigational challenges, and we welcome... Uh, people's help in anticipating and thinking through what, what some of those are. Well, we know what some of them are. Um, media texts um, are, of course, uh, a compound of, of moving image, sound, uh, and, and text. Um, and you're already giving yourself a larger job to do in terms of metadata. The metadata uh, is incredibly significant in terms of digital humanities. Kim and Zdenek will pick up different angles on that. But you've also got questions then about searching. So we're just talking about 50 hours. Let's say we had 250 hours. Um, I think we've got a bit of pretty good feel for what's in the 50 hours, but actually even there... I think Kim's the only person that's watched through it all. Yes. Um, uh, that was some time ago. It's now fully recovered. Um, but uh, you can anticipate what um, uh, a challenge it is for the person that comes to meet this material for the first time, but also the challenges given and the responsibilities given to those people who make discretionary decisions about what will be the nature of the tools you work with. That'll be a point I think we will expand on. There's then a far from insignificant question around rights. This is Dai's area of specialism. Um, the, uh, the rights are the biggest obst obstacle for the BBC to simply opening the door on this huge body of content. Um, Producers who naively slipped in a bit of Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles, and it's amazing how often they did that, um, have uh, created a really big headache for those of us that follow. Uh, one of the uh, things, though, that is interesting and important about access to this archive is that um, 
media production tends to be, um, it's Alan, isn't it? Uh, although Alan will be able to d correct us on this and expand on the ways in which we'll f find routes through this, um, tends to be an oral culture. So there are whole uh, phases of the decision-making process and the, can, the, the making process of media products that are pretty difficult to access for anyone. So I think that, um, that reinforces the sense of opportunity there is around uh, releasing the archive, particularly around contentious contemporary topics. So there's an ex opportunity here to experiment with and deliberate about um, extensions and revisions of contemporary environmental histories. So one obvious, um, uh, sorry, so within that context, we think uh, there's going to be a need to test and develop new digital tools to equip uh, digital scholarship in this in this sphere. Um, we suspect that those will alter not just the work that scholars do, but the work that publics do, the work of environmental politics, um, once it's out there. So it strikes me that there are, um, there are three new things that might happen in the wake of work with uh, digital broadcast archives in any sphere, but they're ones that we have ambitions to work with. The first and most obvious is our bread-and-butter activity of, of producing new academic outputs. We'll produce a new, new environmental histories, drawing on this material, as scholars sitting here at the Open University. We'll be the first to dip our beak in the, in the, uh, in the pond. Um, but uh, we'll be looking pretty soon after that to be making as much of this available publicly as possible. In that light, the second thing is that we should sketch out and anticipate what researchers, learners, and, and wider publics um, might do to stitch this content into their own environmental histories. They'll, they'll be able to revise their own environmental histories with access to this new content. I say it's new content. Of course, if you've got access to the BBC archives, you can access it. But actually, that's a very thin pipe as things stand at the moment. Um, both in terms of actually just getting access, um, but it's actually rather difficult to work with. Again, I think uh, Kim will expand on that. But the third, and actually to my mind, I think the most exciting thing is the opportunity to equip um, uh, a very diverse mix of people with uh, the material and the tools that allow them to generate new environmental histories, to, to mash up this content with other materials to uh, create their own accounts of uh, how we got to here and spanning professional reproduction through to um, uh, you know social media I, I think this could be um, the most significant element of what comes out of this work but a last point I'd make, and it's a sort of pause for thought, and I hope we'll come back to it in discussion, is this question about how the decisions we make about digital tools, the digital tools we construct, um, carry their own uh, ideologies. Um, and uh, if we've got time at the end, I'll come back to a nice quote about that from a, a digital histo uh, historian blogger. Um, but we have already reach branching points 
we've already uh, limited the view of ourselves as users but also future users in the decision across 50 hours that we selected um, in the decisions that you've then made in coding uh, right. and further describing the programs. So we want to step into this, you know, exciting sunny <coughs> upland uh, of uh, digital broadcast archive with a really wide open uh, eyes around that question of digital ideologies um, and, and try to do, in all senses, good work with them. I'm going to hand over to Kim now, who's going to okay. describe uh, the work that uh, she's done to, to really allow us to start to work with it. Okay, should we pass? Yeah. Uh, so this is the um, final table of the metadata. And to accompany this, there are summaries of each of the programs, but this is a kind of keyword summary. So you can have a look as I'm So this talking. is the short version. <laughs> yeah. Just you, okay. we'll pass it around so you can just skim it to get a feel for the range. Yeah. <coughs> so, yes, as Joe said, there's over or up to a million hours of TV and radio content. Um, and that dates back to the 30s for radio and around 47 for TV, um, where earlier broadcasts were unrecorded or live. Um, the TV archive became much more comprehensive from the 70s because of the use of videotape and also the inclusion of librarians and archivists. And at the same time, um, Adam Lee, the Ar BBC archivist, says that people saw television as something more long-term rather than a soundbite for the day, so something worth saving. So the BBC, via the Open Broadcast Unit, commissioned a search of the archive database with two aims. Um, one was to create content pilot for education use, so how can the BBC archive be mined for relevant subject content which you could use in module developments and teaching and that's potentially over the whole curriculum um, and the second one was to develop tools so that that material could be easily accessed and used um, so part of the study was to inform the development of higher education learning content to provide a cost effective way of utilising existing media resources and to expand access to media content for the purposes of research and as Joe said the two subjects for the pilot study were psychology and environment and for the environment section there was 50 hours in total, I think we did about 47 hours in the end um, and the pilot study also explored the potential issues around using the data. So, for example, the, how difficult was it to secure high-level rights clearance for each of the films or the programmes, um, understanding how much work's involved in making the material accessible to academics, for example, to summarise, to watch a programme and summarise the content and then add the metadata in some searchable way, how to present that material in a user-friendly way, which Zenek will talk about, and also cost. How much does it actually cost to do this? Um, so I worked on the environment pilot study, and the first task was to search through the BBC database for 50 hours of film. So we decided we wanted a good mix of programmes 
So we wanted film and radio. We wanted programmes that ranged over five decades. Uh, we looked at things like the age of the viewers, so some children's programmes, some adult programmes. Different issues, so we chose some broad categories, which I'll show you in a minute, for environmental issues, but also looking at ideas of scale and location. Um, and then also to have some popular TV and radio, not just things we might be interested in personally, like the BBC Two shows or Radio Four, and style of programmes <laughs> like uh, documentaries, news items, drama, reality TV, popular children's programmes, and so on. So with the Fifth Jazz, we tried to get a very good range of programmes. So this table just shows the, the main environmental headings that we searched on. And of course there's loads of material comes up in the searches and I was making decisions as I went, you know, this programme looks interesting to me. But of course someone else might have chosen something else. So this is very much my take on the database. Um, and this table just shows how many programmes we chose in each category. Uh, how many were TV and radio? There's a lot more television than radio. And, and the total hours, so climate change, we had 12 hours of footage um, divided between television and radio. So we've got 99 programmes in total and 46 hours, 46 and a half hours. And this programme just gives you the spread over the decades. So obviously there were fewer programmes in the earlier decades and then there's, there's more to search from in the later ones. But from my point of view, some of the earlier programmes were more interesting because they're, you know, so far away from us. Um, yeah, so again, climate change, there was more on that, but nothing. You, also, for, from an environmental point of view, you see, you know, when was something popular? When did something become an issue? Or, you know, when, when did the media make something an issue? Um, so the idea was to create some metadata around the hours that I selected. So for each programme I selected, Steve had to get me a digital copy um, from the archives and then I had to watch or listen to each of them and make a detailed synopsis. In the end I, th I felt that what you would do is a transcript of the programme um, and then around that I built a database which I chose key ideas, themes, words that you might search on. And also I tried to put in information like how views had changed. So, and also maybe in the end, if, if, you, if we had a, an online database, viewers could also add categories or add links and so forth. Um, so one of the visions we had was the creation of searchable video and radio site, particularly one which breaks programmes down into small sections and one that includes full transcripts as well as annotated, detailed notes, search words and so forth. So this is an example of one programme which I will show you at the end of the talk. Um, from and just to give you an idea of the table that's actually going around the room, this is some of the categories that we chose. So we've got key 
words in context, um, then keywords, and then key ideas. So we didn't get as far as deciding how you would search it, but at the bottom there, there's also other search terms that were in that table. So decade, the length of the programme, reporters, contributors, corrections, and so on. And you can see how people might add stuff to that as users might add links to a paper or, or a relevant news article or something. So this, I'm not expecting you to read it, but this is an idea of one of the summaries that I made. So this was another programme we're going to see later, which is Margaret Thatcher talking at the World Climate Conference in 1990. It's two and a half minutes, and that's my summary of the news programme. I'll give you a minute to, and I've also I've got for each of the film clips we watch later I've got my summaries so you're welcome to have a look at those at the end so the question really is how how to work with the archive so in a way we thought short clips are easier to watch through you don't have to watch through 30 minutes but 5 minutes where you know roughly what's in that content is is more usable um, obviously, searchability is essential to be good, to be user-friendly. Um, you might search on a keyword and then be taken to a list of... But then you want more details. You know, the keywords themselves are going to have to have uh, more detail than, say, climate change. Um, the third issue is accessibility. So for the 50 hours that we used in the end, and I think I'm right, we had about 80% clear third level clearance, which is you can use the film in the Open University for staff and students. 60% um, second level clearance, so that's all higher education institutes, and 40% public use. Is that about right? Uh, yeah. Um, and obviously we learned a lot when we were searching the films how to search to improve clearance so if you know the Beatles are on your song you might on your program you might not use them because of the cost of clearing that or you could cut that out of a piece of programming so there are ways around that um, so we feel that the event if you were to create a site it would be something like YouTube we saw as the kind of gold standard of digital video libraries um, and it has a rapid capture of viewing time but it's quite active it's intuitive, simple, reliable um, but our question would be how could you build structured meaning, learning and narratives from these so our aim should be more, to, more than offer bites um, but I mean, again, that's Zenik will talk about that a bit um, when he talks about the tools. And the other big issue was, you know, who would host the archive? Because obviously you, you'd be managing content, and that's a big issue. So that was our, our big vision, is the YouTube of the BBC. And these are the film clips that I'm going to show later, but first of all, Zenik's going to talk about tools and the development of tools to use the database. Okay, I'm going to talk about three, as Joe quite correctly says, very fantastic projects. <laughs> Which is, one is related to Bletchley Park, it's called Bletchley Park Text, and it's, um, I don't know if you know the story of Bletchley Park, 
Bletchley Park during the war, there was a code and cipher, government code and cipher school, which was strictly classified place. They were code breakers, uh, the best brains of, of the country which could contribute, uh, were there uh, in 1945. It was everything was dismantled, still strictly classified until 74-75. Then it was declassified, and in 90s uh, they created museum on very low budget, and they were trying to collect, get get uh, data, get some information about what was happening there. Uh, still, many uh, documents were classified, so the the tour guides were interviewing people who used to work there. Obviously, if in 1995 interview somebody who, is, who can give you some information is in, say, 70s, so this person was during the war 20-something, 20 24, 25, and, or maybe 20, and it was on very junior position, so they could give you just very small fragments of information. Uh, this is an example of one interview, and the tour guides recorded everything on a simple tape recorder and, and transcribed everything uh, into text. So this was the, the input data for us. This is an example of, uh, I don't want you to read it, of one of these uh, interviews. I will show you a small part of that. This is a small segment of this interview, and we, you, we annotated this text using uh, as a metadata using ontology, standard ontology, uh, CIDOC CRM, which we extended and also we contributed to the development of this ISO standard a little bit. So, in principle, it talks about objects, people, places, time, and events. These are the basic building blocks which we, which we broke it into. This was done manually. So, here I highlighted by green places, by uh, yellow uh, is the event. As you can see, red are actors. Uh, <coughs> this is the part of the interview which is which is uh, which is annotated in this way. And we created structure around this event. So event has associated person, associated place, happened in time, etc. So you can imagine that there was a small table for each event, and each story was a sequence of events. So this is one event. The, which, which I uh, draw here as, as, as this small kind of spider on the left, which is event. There are three, par I think, two, peop two uh, persons, uh, one temporal information, two places, and one, one object. And obviously, you can start combining these stories together and start finding pathways through the, through the space of concepts which are there. Uh, this is how I represent these stories. You, as you can see, they share some people, share some objects, share some places, as in normal, what you can expect. In fact, you have here one, two, three, four, five stories on the left, but in fact many more things happened. There are many more events and many more people. Only five of, the, five of them are documented here. And we can... In fact, it was even worse. Uh, <laughs> and from what was documented here, we can speculate. We can, there are reasonable assumptions which we can make about what was happening. So, for example, if person A was billeted in place one, 
from time one to time two, and somebody else was billeted in the same place, it's very likely they knew each other. So this is just speculation. We don't have fact, primary fact for that, but we can do this kind of reasoning. And we understand that what we have derived is based on our speculation. Uh, so we built this engine, and uh, it's since, 19, since 2005 it's in use. It's now, by co sheer coincidence, is in maintenance and will be available, say, within about 10 days, uh, two weeks. We printed uh, visitors. Yeah, visitors at Bletchley Park can go there. There are labels on on exhibits, and if you because it's there are many themes there. It's about code breaking. It's about early computing. It's about mathematics. It's about life in uh, wartime uh, England. It's about uh, Battle of uh, Britain. It's about U-boats. Uh, it's about something what happened in Pacific. There are many. It's, it's very rich content. So what you can do as a visitor can send the label, which is their bomb, that's the, the deciphering machine, uh, to a specific telephone number. And when you get home, you have customized content for you and you can start exploring what you are interested in. So you focus on certain components, certain parts, uh, by sending SMS message. We didn't want to provide feedback in Bletchley Park back to people because if you are Bletchley Park, you should listen to, to the guide and breathe the, the same air as Alan Turing used to breathe 50 years earlier. So don't, don't get distracted. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was one project. The other one which I want to talk is about Eurogy. It's called Eurogene. This was also a European project, and the idea is sharing content of uh, educational content, multimedia educational content on human genetics, uh, presented in as text, PowerPoint, uh, plain text, PowerPoint, Word, PDF, uh, video, audio. That's probably it. So you can upload it. If it is machine readable, it's automatically annotated. It can be presented in 10 different European languages. Uh, it's machine translated into, uh, of these 10 into many pairs, if there is a machine translation. Uh, as a machine translation tool, we are, using, uh, we are using software which was developed by French company. Uh, system. It was also adapted, uh, used in early days by Google. It's adapted for the domain of human genetics, and you, as a geneticist, can submit. And then you, you have obviously search facilities how you can, what you can search. You can define whether you want it in this language or another language. Uh, you can also, it's divided into academic levels. We have uh, expert level, we have Bologna agreement uh, levels, and the GCSE level, and we were also thinking, uh, it hasn't happened so far, about the level of, say, family and affected people and family because there are many things about that. These are the initial partners that contributed to, 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 to the project. Uh, we were the, practically the only one who was developing technology and to some extent we were driving the, 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 uh, the whole process. Uh, the content was quality assurance was done by the European Society for Human Genetics. Uh, and this is the search, how you can do it. You can search 
what you want, uh, which language, etc., etc., and uh, you can obviously also play the video. This is there is a few. I strongly recommend you to to look at that. Uh, there are nice videos from Newcastle. This is Professor John Byrne from Newcastle University, who is well-known British geneticist. It's uh, so there are there, are, there is a sequence of videos. Uh, which are part of, of, of the system. The system is running, still available, in use. It's being used by, I think the, the number is correct, 150 uh, people from 157 countries around the world, of all continents with the exception of Antarctica. And, and uh, you can use it, you can, you can log in, you can use it. Uh, it's very narrow scope because it's human genetics, so it's not, say, uh, animal genetics, it's not plant genetics, it's, it's human genetics. But feel free to, to test it. Uh, the next project I want to talk about, 35? Yeah. Good. Uh, is connecting repositories. That's another project which is still in certain forms running. We are connecting all UK open access repositories, including the OU's Oro. <coughs> we harvest metadata whenever it is possible, whenever it is available. We also harvest full text, and we calculate semantic similarity between <coughs> full text. So you can, it's, you can access it from Oro, you can access it from, from your computer, from the web. You can also access it on iPad, or you can access it on phone, okay. Android phone. Uh, you, we, ha we download the content, calculate semantic similarity, and recommend you something which is related to what you are asking for. Uh, this is the interface which you will see if you connect. It's core, I think it's down there, cone.kmi.open.ac.uk. We originally wanted core.open.ac.uk, but we are not core of the OU. <laughs> we are only core <laughs> of the KMI. Okay. What is interesting is you can use another information source and plug it in. First of all, you can integrate it, obviously. We are, at the moment, as I said, we are harvesting and analyzing all UK open access repositories, plus uh, open access journals, which are organized in DOAJ, which is Directory of Open Access Journals uh, administered by Lund University in Sweden. So all that we are uh, aggregating and all that we are analyzing metadata and if there is a full text, so analyzing full text, not everywhere, uh, in, in, only in some small proportion or certain proportion of that is full text available. Uh, but what we've done is uh, also we built a portal for UNESCO, and this UNESCO portal can just suck information from core, and that's possible. You know, so imagine that UNESCO is organizing an event, invites people to submit papers. They are not, it's not official publication. It's publication of UNESCO. It's open access for them, but it's not 
it doesn't go, go through peer review, etc. And these people they are young scientists from somewhere, from some remote place, maybe not very experienced, not uh, access to, to publishing, or just they, they would like to express their view. And uh, in, in this event, UNESCO event about the uh, role of women in South Asia, or uh, I don't know how to, how to do agriculture in, uh, in Southern America, whatever. And you can, f we do mapping to core. So with submitting papers, say, about the topic of UNESCO, you also get semantically similar papers which are published in any open access repository in the UK. You can, you can get it. You can search. We recommend you the paper and DOAJ, Department, this open access journals. I can show you. I think my time is running out. <laughs> uh, but yes, later yes, I, yeah. we may have more opportunities. Yeah, later I can show you, for example, how to how to do it on on these on things. The it's available. You can download it. Download it free. Feel free to. Yeah, okay, it's fun. <laughs> so what, what we thought we'd do now, do you want to set up the yeah. film clips? Um, we're going to show clip? some clips. Um, Get another sandwich. I think you'll, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think um, it'll be clear to you as you see the clips, but from what we said already, why those tools are relevant to the both scholarly and public engagement opportunities and responsibilities that are thrown up by this archive. Yeah. And with the films, I mean, that's the list that I've chosen. And, I mean, there's so many things that I'd want to show, but and I'm just going to show you, like, a couple of minutes of each one, usually just from the beginning because it's easier and you get a better idea of the content from the first couple of minutes. Okay. Let's try the first one. So we'll watch two minutes of this one. Hopefully. Okay, we'll leave that there. <laughs> She's actually 22. <laughs> right, why won't I love it? the idea of an, an old family health food shop. I know. <laughs> right. Next one. Well, what sort of what that sounds technical. You're looking at the raw, you know, the, the original files there. We've obviously created um, for you know, our own video finder, you know, sort of flash at the moment, sorry about that. Um, but uh, you know that can be transcoded in the future. But you know, I mean, it streams very nicely across the network. You know. Steve, could you just give people a sentence or two on Video Finder, what it is and how it works? Yeah, I mean, Video Finder has been um, sort of set up for the first time to allow you know the open community to access um, you know, its own video and you know, latterly the, you know, the radio archive as well. Um, and uh, it's in the natural home to place all this material now using all Kim's metadata. Um, such that if you were to do a search on, uh, for example, BBC and environment, you would pull up the full 50 hours worth of radio and TV material. Uh, and anybody across campus can currently access that as long as you've got an, an OU Roku and you can, you can access it um, externally if you've got a VPN card as well. 
Um, but as I say, it's got the last you know, 40 years worth of material in there, not all to view or to listen to, because we're a lot of backfilling to do. But, um, yeah, like I said, for the first time, we can actually now you know, see and listen to our own content. But it's not really yet a friendly student <coughs> interface. I mean, it's, it's, to get, it's, a, it's a, a very little screen, allows you to see it, get a feel for it, but you wouldn't want to work with it. So that's a, that's part of the challenge ahead, really. Yeah, it's exactly, yes. It's, um, it's, 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 it's the best we can do at the moment, yeah. given the resources we have. Yeah. yeah. Right, so Come this on. is a population explosion programme from the 60s. It was a big issue. Uh, I want... I'll just start... Sorry. <laughs> but that gives you an idea. And that's just, a, it doesn't really give you the range. I mean. Yeah. And so, these are the program summaries if anyone just wants to have a look at how they look. The yeah, you can have these and the long, uh, the big document back, but do pass them around and have a look. Okay. So um, we've uh, got a quarter of an hour now for uh, comments, questions, reflections. Don't be shy. Thanks. When I came here, I thought I'd be seeing things about environmental change, like evidence from sort of 30, 40 years ago of what the environment was like. But now I've realised I was misleading myself. And it's so much more about the narratives that go along with environmental understanding. I mean, what you talk about earlier about politics and ideology of media and communication. Yeah, but also what you're talking about is probably there in some asp in some form. There are some science-based programs like uh, the stories that are, stories are what are interesting, and we're always telling stories about the environment. So I think that's all we ever have. But at the same time, that's I mean that points out this thing about the importance of being kind of open enough to the design of the tools that actually an environmental scientist that. Um, has no records for a particular mahogany forest can uh, access some visual record that may not be there in a photographic record. I mean, it, that's difficult to anticipate, but, um, you know, when you've got several hundred hours uh, of, of content from across the planet, yes, that's one of... I mean, not in relation to broadcast archive, but I know someone who's interested in a project around uh, whether family photographs can help uh, plot environmental change in terms of uh, vegetation in particular parts of the world. So you can immediately see how, as long as the tools we offer are sufficiently open, there are these pretty diverse uses that people might make. Um, yeah. Yes. There's an issue for me in terms of interpretation. Um, I mean, they're great in the sense that people are, at one level, you can recognize the distance people have through this, the way they speak, the clothes they wear, the situation they're in. So I suppose this question for me is how do we interpret these dispassionately? I mean, you know, we're sort of smiling, joking a bit about some of those individuals because they are characters to some extent, people we imagine them to be. Um, there's a serious underlying point of how do we 
interpret what these people are saying dispassionately and put them in their relevant context so that we maintain an understanding of their understanding so that we don't, they don't become figures of ridicule or naivety. That's a good question. I mean, well, I mean, some of the arts and humanities people present might want to come in on this, but um, I mean, there is already a kind of we already have a history that that kind of layers what the 50s debates about food are about, or the early 60s debates about food are about. But most of us are missing quite a significant component of that. Of course, I mean, I think even more so then than now. You know, performance was a big element of how people were presenting themselves. So if I'm approaching that, or indeed I'm getting students to work with that, I think this, I think your point becomes particularly significant if you're teaching with this material yeah, rather than researching with it. Then, then I think actually part of the teaching we can do with that is, you know, reflexivity of the scholar. Um, you know, you just need to understand your own position. You need to read the accents as decisions of the performer, just selection decisions of the editor, uh, I mean, of the producer. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I'd also say you can look at this material from 10, 20, 30 years and then wonder, well, you know, how, what are our programmes going to look like in 10, 20? And it gives, I think it gives a unique perspective in that way where you can think, well, mm. we're presenting things similarly sometimes. Mm. It may just change, but content... Um, so that's an interesting um, aspect. And also I think you're watching it, but you're looking for content. So if somebody says to me, or if I read in a paper, my field's like food and agriculture, and someone says, well, in the 70s, food wasn't a political issue. Well, this material shows me it's always been a political issue. So it depends what you're looking at it for. In terms of research scholarship, actually... In the outputs we're most familiar with, which is texts, you know, actually a lot of that kind of quaintness and distance will disappear because you'll be presenting a text, of course, you'll be presenting a transcript, a quotation. Um, and then something else pops out, which is that, um, which is how depressingly familiar uh, from this week those yeah. statements from 1990 were. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, change of tie, you know, more or less we're there. Um, and the continuity of the discourses is striking sometimes. Actually, I was going to think about it, the, the discontinuities, cause, because I had a look at the presentation in Open University's teaching materials, which the BBC produced over 40 years, and they change quite significantly. So it isn't just a change of the tie, because the way their pedagogic um, techniques or understandings or uh, ways in which they're trying to engage the viewers or the <coughs> students uh, shift quite a lot, and that's not to do. That's in this. That's, so if you to compare S100 with S103, that's just a. It's not just the, the content changes, but also the way in which they're understanding what they're doing and how they're communicating shifts quite dramatically, and that's partly. Of course, because of technology, that is, at the beginning you can just watch a television program once, so the presenter has to say things slowly and several times, whereas when you get to the point where you're videoing things, then it shifts to how you 
make the programme. It's not only to do with the technology, it's also to do with the uh, shifts in pedagogy, which relate to the way in which Panorama is presented just as much as they are to S100. So I'm not convinced about your tie-shifting argument. No, I mean, I think I was referring particularly to actually the politics of climate change oh. in that case. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I think, no, I mean, representations of population, I think there's, there's a really interesting story in there. Some some continuities, actually some continuities around the way, you know, the data visualisation and, um, and the metaphors, um, but then some jarring, and, you know, so... Yeah, and also it might be possible to have access to material from the producers and the directors and how decisions were made about programmes and content, and that could all link into how you appreciate it. And be linked into whatever magical YouTube. I'm intrigued by something you said in your introduction about uh, audience and slash participant, I think. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, you might elaborate on that yeah. a little bit, but I guess what you're getting at is that, um, in, in a way, the, the digital archive like this. Um, removes the authority of the person who's created the story, the narrative, and gives that potential for narrative making back to anyone who um, actually chooses to use the archive. And that seems to me a very uh, radical move, really. Is that what y- you're Yes, it, potentially. <laughs> but I guess that's why I put that phrase about digital... Um, Ideologies right up front because I think um, this, um, and I'm, I've certainly, I, I am guilty of some quite lazy assumptions around this, but I'll, I'll give this quote because it nicely answers it from, um, uh, uh, as I say, a digital humanities, a, a historian. Um, it's from his blog. Uh, digital humanities do- does have its strong suits, the ethics of copyright, privacy, and open source. But as an intellectual community, its positions on race, gender, class and environment are under-theorised and under-implemented, even if many practitioners think otherwise. My concern is that when everyone in digital humanities finally builds his or her one collaborative widget to rule them all, the dust will settle around Mordor and it'll actually still be mostly a bunch of white academics at relatively wealthy universities talking about open access and probably around a rather nice table with a few unlocked iPads on it. Um, so, I mean, that's also quite a nice comment about things you can do in blogs that you can't do in academic papers, but actually say what needs saying. But um, I, think yeah. we, I think we hold quite a strong responsibility to step into this with the intention of openness and opening up. And some of that's going to be problematic. So, I mean, um, uh, I work quite a lot around the mediation of climate change, environmental changes issues in general, but I know that opening up this archive will and should make some of that conversation you know, possibly even more awkward than it is now because you can see particular moves made that appear to close down the conversation um, I don't think that's intended I don't think that that's um, that's a kind of guided move by editors or by some dark forces but I think you can see it happening 
So this is an opportunity to pluralise environmental change discourses again. And I, I suspect that's true of many contentious issues. I think this area of broadcast archive release is going to be quite powerful, particularly in kind of life sciences or in health and social welfare. I think the psychology. I haven't talked to people. Yeah, I mean, the this is just one, the environment. Yes. Yeah. Every, you know, the entire BBC archive to be yeah. opened up, maybe. Yeah. You mentioned uh, at the start some some work about doing the BBC's Britain Archive Centre, and uh, the BBC uh, distinguishes between this AV stuff, um, which I. I have tried to get my hands on it in the past, it's just been terribly difficult. And the internal BBC documents regarding programme making, which are held quite separately, and are generally easy for scholars to get access to. And actually, most of my work has been done there, so I've been reading about programmes, mostly radio programmes, which don't exist as recording, just having to, have to imagine what, what the programme is like. But it strikes me that from looking at these, if, if one wanted, for instance, to unpack a particular program or series on some theme from this, then uh, it would be unwise to embark on that without looking at the paperwork about the program, yeah, where, where you might find they wanted to interview somebody from the University of Oxford but couldn't get him or her, and that's why you've got five minutes of somebody from the University of Bletchley. Uh, yeah. Without that kind of background... Well, uh, you know, a really lovely place to be in 10 years' time would be not just to have the uh, paper archives accessible in parallel with the programmes, but also plug in interviews with programme makers or, or uh, commissioners where, where they're still around. And that would be, that would be a really rich uh, resource. And, and open and, resource. I mean, yeah. that should, you know, that should be gold. But, you know... And commentary uh, from programme makers yeah. today about yeah. past programme makers. Yeah. Also, programmes become interesting for different reasons with the passage of time. Um, there's uh, an OU electronics television programme, which I, I would love to see from about 1971 or two. And one of the people in that, I, I read from a catalogue description, is a, an American chap called William Shockley, who was one of the Nobel prize winners for the invention of the transistor. But Shockley is now notorious for something else entirely. And that was in, in later life he went a bit off his rocker and really got into uh, racial superiority and was extremely con controversial on the states for popping up and making all kinds of outrageous statements about IQ and race and all the rest of it. Um, to the extent that when, when he came to Leeds once, I think, to give a, a talk in the 80s or something, as usual, egg throwing and all the rest of it. So I would love to see that early television programme. Nothing to do with electronics, but just yeah, to see yeah, some so footage of this person. Yeah. Mm. Um, going back to audiences again, um, well, Dundee did a I just wonder if there's any attempt at the moment to sort of, you know, ask them what they want and, and schools and other universities and so on. It seems to be quite directed by the OU. I mean, you two might want to join in on this at any point. Don't be shy. Yeah, just okay. tell us we've um, overstepped our vision. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, 
the BBC and the OU have a formal agreement, and there are natural and obvious reasons why they would come to us before anyone else to pilot this kind of working. But everyone involved in that is setting out with the intention of making this material publicly available. Now, that's not the same as answering your question about what do they want. And I think um, one of the reasons, I mean, we want to turn this, we've actually, there's a paper sitting behind what we presented today that we want to get out as quick as possible, precisely in order that we can ask that question of other scholars. Um, but the question the of who would resource and look after that is another one. I mean, Video Finder is quick and dirty, does the job for our purposes, but it's absolutely not a solution. Um, no, no, you're right. Yeah. I, mean, and, and, I mean, obviously the BBC will, will have its own agenda for its, its own public accessibility. Uh, yeah. And we have to be careful we don't queer our pitch, so to speak, you know, sort of with our access, because yeah. without the access to the BBC archive, mm. we'd be in a very dark, dark, bad place, I think, personally. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, please do come and see me if you want to get access to any of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's something we, we, we have to sort of strike the right balance. And at the moment, you know, clearly the OU curriculum is our, you know, yeah. main sort of thrust. And also the BBC, through this, are thinking about what they want to do with the archives. So it's not necessarily that it would come our way, even, is it? No, absolutely. It's not that we have ownership of that, you know, the the material that's been cleared for extending to HEI, so, you know, it's BBC yeah. usage as well, you know, when it's been cleared for OU staff and student use, you know, it's for us to do mm. what it's been cleared for. But that BBC vision is. of, like, a YouTube, that's just a vision of what even the BBC could do with it. Yeah. It's not saying, well, the OU would do that, it's what we saw as, a, as the ideal, to have all that material available without anyone particularly saying, well, we'll watch this, but not this. But the BBC have a difficult and controversial question on a much larger scale than the conversation they're having with us or other scholars uh, about what they do with the archive, because obviously uh, most of us in this room have paid for it already, um, and uh, the question of, you know, if they would attempt to monetize the value of the archive, then... That raises immediate and obvious questions. Um, that, that's a live question. For and them. there's a cost, yeah. a huge cost, yeah. to making it available. Yeah. In rights, clearance, and digitisation, yeah. etc. I mean, how, yeah. how, I mean, it was expensive, wasn't it? It's 50 mm -hmm. hours. I think uh, it's hard to say whether it's expensive or not, you know, with the mm -hmm. sort of future usage that it potentially will yeah. have. You know, but somebody's it's got to be funded. It has to be funded for mm. third-party clearances and mm. obviously someone to do the clearances and, as you mm. say, digitising. Mm. So there's a cost element to it. And then the analysis, if you do it. Now, I promised we'd finish on 1.30, Um I think we'll be here for a few minutes uh, to pick up any further questions. Uh, really, thanks very much for coming, and do keep in touch with us, with us if you've got further queries. You don't have to thank me, but do thank these two. Okay. Well. <laughs>